You might know James Asmus for his work in the comic book field, writing for such titles as Gambit or Thief of Thieves. Some of you might be more familiar with his award-winning plays like Love is Dead or Hearts Full of Blood, and yet others might recognize the Cleveland native more for his stand-up comedy or performances with sketch comedy troupe Hey You Millionaires, twice voted Best Sketch Group in the Best of Chicago Reader Poll. It might seem to be a strange amalgam of jobs for one person, but for the one-time waiter, swimming instructor, and fake patient for medical schools, it seems to be par for the course. We talked to James about how performing comedy helps his writing, transitioning from playwright to comic book writer, Amelia Earhart, Jungle Princess, and more on the Scripts and Scribes podcast right now. Welcome to the Scripts and Scribes podcast. I'm your host, Kevin Fukunaga, and today we're speaking with award-winning playwright and comic book writer, James Asmus. Thanks for joining us today, James. Hey, my pleasure. How are you today? Uh, very well, very well. Just coming up from air after pounding away at deadlines. Excellent. Um, now, you've got quite an interesting resume. Uh, <laughs> a lot of people know you from your comic book work. Uh, you write Gambit, you write Thief of Thieves, um, and you've written for number of other titles, X-Men titles and things like that. Yeah. Um, and others might know you from your work as an award-winning playwright of comedies and musicals. Um, the thing is, those two genres of writing don't tend to mix very much. <laughs> um, how did you transition from doing theater and sketch comedy to uh, uh, comic book writing? Um, well, I had uh, I had always been a very big comic fan. Uh, in, in my youth, you would be hard pressed to get me to read a book, but I, I would read every comic I could grab. Um, and then uh, skipping ahead some, once I was doing playwriting, I wrote a musical that ended up going to the New York Fringe Festival. Um, this was uh, when I was living and working in Chicago as a playwright. Mm -hmm. And uh, when I knew we were going to New York, um, I knew one or two folks who sort of were, you know, working in the offices at Marvel. And I reached out to them and I said, if anyone from the company wants to come to see the show, I'd love to have them as my guest. And, you know, at the time, I, I didn't think I was angling for a job. I just sort of was hoping I could meet people who make the comic books I love and that, you right. know, I could bribe them into spending time listening to my asinine questions. <laughs> And I could just geek out over, you know, X-Men with them. Right. Uh, and, and then they saw the show and they dug the show and, you know, they sort of said, you can, you can write. Do you want to try writing comics? Uh, and, and at the time they were doing uh, more anthologies, mm -hmm. and that was sort of the way they tested out writers. They would have you do an eight page story, you know, uh, an eight page comic. And in, in, in this case, it was a book called X-Men Manifest Destiny. Mm -hmm. And, you know, if I screwed up, there were two or three other stories in the book to, to help balance it out. But uh, they were, as it turns out, happy with um, what I put together for them and, and just sort of kept giving me little jobs here and there. And I've been working my way slowly but surely um, up the totem pole uh, since then. Right. Well, I mean, you do have uh, a lot of great work under your belt. And I know you... Uh with the uh, revamp of Gambit and uh, Robert Kirkman's Thief of Thieves. So yeah. it's, uh, you're, you're definitely uh, uh, taking on some, some great projects. Yeah. It's um, it, it's, I've been very, very uh, happy and, and fortunate that really everything 
I get offered is like more exciting than the last thing. Right. And, and you know, bigger. Um, I, I'm, I know that'll stop at some point, but I'm really consciously delighted to be at that point. Still. Right. Now your, your style uh, is very interesting to me. You, you sort of blend that comedy with a little bit of violence and sexiness and kind of in that weird mix there. Yeah. Um, you know, it, to me, you feel like a sort of a, your style is a cross between like Chuck Palahniuk and the guys from South Park, you know, Matt, huh. <laughs> Matt Stone and I Trey Parker. I, I will absolutely take that. <laughs> um, you combine those guys and, and that's James Asmus to me, uh, which is great because I, I love all of them. Um, but who are some of your influences? Um, oh, this, this is always a, a tricky question because, uh, m my favorite things are, are not one thing. Mm -hmm. Um, I, I find things that are just comedy, uh, to be, um, a, a little hollow or, or, or to leave me wanting something. Right. And I find things that are just tough guy material or just drama uh to to feel unreal mm -hmm. um so my favorite things are, are the things that kind of balance both but certainly in in film and and stuff uh television it's uh it's hard to convince people who who fund projects that that's okay so uh i think chuck polonik is, is an amazing example of someone who actually does do that well um i probably found him a little too late in my life to say he's an influence but um right uh, you know, my, my favorite, my, the first comic I ever read was, uh, a Keith Giffen, J.M. DiMatteis, I hope I'm saying those names right, um, uh, Justice League from the 80s, Great stuff. Which, which had a lot of humor to it. Right, it still right. had super heroics, but it was, it was almost, um, a character-based sitcom of how these people have to deal with each other in trying to save the day. Mm -hmm. And, uh, that, you know, I, I had that book and reread it probably a hundred times before I ever got my second comic. And so th that, to me, I probably created what I think comics should be. So it, it's probably responsible for that in a way that if my first book had been, you know, The Dark Knight Returns, I'm <laughs> a very different comic writer. Right, right. <laughs> but also then, you know, like Chris Claremont's um, late 70s, early 80s X-Men run, mm -hmm. um, and and then also his late 80s, like the beginning of his run on Excalibur in particular was right. the first book I really collected. Um, and those both have a lot of character, a lot of humor, um, but but there's real sadness and longing and, and um, there, there's genuine menace behind things. Mm -hmm. And then, uh, yeah, I mean, I, you know, I'm, I'm a genre fan, so I delight in the violence in the horror in the creepiness and the mystery. I, I love sort of all of those things that arch the story upwards. Um, but I only care when it's still about character. So, so that's where I sort of loop back to my theater roots. And, you know, I, I love, like, I'll, I'll be honest. I love, you know, reading Ibsen or Edward Albee. And, uh, you know, I, um, I am no, Shakespeare and and so I feel horrible bringing this up but I, <laughs> but I but I mean Shakespeare's work literally his his tragedies have comedic characters right and, and comedic interludes and his you know his fantasy pieces uh Midsummer Night's Dream and The Tempest uh, these these still have uh humanity and comedy and, and even Macbeth has supernatural 
overtones in it. And mm -hmm. so I, I feel like things, you know, maybe that's um, the, what I aspire to. Um, and I, and I will forever fall wildly short of Shakespeare, but I, I think it's just that sort of a, an amalgam. He's proof that it can work. Right. I just think a lot of people back off of it because it's harder to sell or to, you know, it's, it's really easy to get wrong. It's alchemy. Right. Right. You either hit a home run or strike out swinging, huh? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I, I think there's also just the risk that, you know, there is always the risk that someone goes, Oh, I showed up for a superhero story. Why are you telling me like a first date romance? Right. Um, and so you, I, I try and be very conscious. And this is, this goes back to um, when I was creating original theater, I try and be very mindful of um, what you're declaring the, the, what I'm declaring the thing I write to be and making sure I pay off that promise. Mm -hmm. uh, and then what, once I make sure that I've delivered enough for the audience, then I carve out the spaces to do what I sort of want to do secretly or as like my secondary agenda. Right. Um, now, I, I wanted to talk a little bit about performing because in addition to being a writer, you're also a performer. Yeah. Um, doing stand-up, improv, sketch comedy. How does that help in your writing process in terms of not just writing, but actually delivering lines, jokes, things like that. Huh. Um, it's, uh, I, th I think it's really made me invest heavily uh, in the idea that my characters are um, the story I'm telling. Mm -hmm. And that's, I'm, I'm sort of really interested in following them and in what they have to say and in their emotional experience of things. So, um, I'm probably less inclined to be the guy that writes the giant um, universe spanning, you know, the um, sort of big picture uh, chaotic event comics. Um, I, I don't think I would feel very comfortable making it where every person only had <clears throat> every character has two lines and you're really just watching a giant fight you know, to, to stop Thanos from destroying the universe or something. I, I, I don't think I, I'm into that. I, I right. think I'm much more concerned with the quirks and the nuance of the character is the way that um, that makes the story distinct. Every, every story has sort of been done before. So you, it's in the specifics where you make it new. And so I'm much more inclined to find that in the idiosyncrasies of my characters and the specific fears and vulnerabilities of my characters than I am out of trying to like create a better heist as it were. Right. Right. Um, no, and it definitely comes across. I mean, you're right. Your writing has great characters and, uh, yeah. And I think that that's, that's what a lot of times some of the less successful storylines miss out on there. Like you said, they're trying to create the better, uh, uh, bank robbery. Right. Uh, and I mean, you know, when there are people who can do that and when sure. they, it is thrilling in its own way, I just, I feel like, um, I, I just feel like I know that's not what I'm drawn to. Mm -hmm. And so I, I'm happy to try and improve those skills where I can, but I, I'm not going to put all my eggs in, in that basket. <laughs> right. I, I also just, I like falling in love with the voices of my characters. I like, I like, um, I get really excited when I feel like I can 
become that character. And I think, I think those same instincts I had as an actor and as an improviser, especially where I would have to put on a new character instantaneously Mm -hmm. and sort of um, explore in their voice or in their mindset. Um, I get really excited when I realize I've got characters to write where, where I'm excited to do that and where I'm excited to put on their skin and riff. Um, And you know, I'm not. I'm not above admitting that I sometimes speak out loud as my character. <laughs> I was going to very improvised scene when I'm trying to find my way in. <laughs> I was going to ask that actually. <laughs> Do you talk to yourself? Yes. Uh-huh. Oh, absolutely. Um, now, a lot of your playwriting is of the musical variety. Yeah. Uh, musical comedies. What kind of musical background do you have, and what's the process like? You know, writing songs for a musical. Um. Well, yeah. My my. I grew up uh, as an actor in a sort of like youth theater mm-hmm. uh, training program and um, uh, much, very much of what we did was musicals and, and song reviews and stuff. I mean, I, I probably took six or seven years of, of voice training. <laughs> um, they had a long hill to climb, so I, it probably sounds like I had two, uh, <laughs> uh, but the uh i i've always loved loved musicals and that there was a big part of what i did growing up and you know in high school even a little bit in college um good musicals i think are just sublime and and they're they're more they're you're able to express in me like we get more emotionally excited and invested in in songs that really strike a chord with us mm-hmm. than we are with most things and it's because the music lets you kind of capture a truer emotion than my description of something would ever be. Right. Um, It also just creates a great element of counterpoint to play with. So when I was saying like, I don't, I prefer things that aren't just one tone. Mm -hmm. Uh, Musicals are wonderful because I can sing a love ballad with really disturbing music under it. Right. Uh, Or I can sing something really disturbing with beautiful you know, um, uh, classically romantic music underneath. And it can create uh, this dichotomy in your brain that lets you truly experience both things and and this greater third thing that exists is the synergy between them. Um, That's when I think musicals are amazing. I think they're terrible when it's just someone writing cheesy bullshit music to go with an 80s movie no one really cares about. (laughs) That stuff makes me furious. And that makes me say I hate musicals, but good musicals are um, make me delirious. So I, the minute I knew people good enough to write music uh, that that would get me excited, I, I immediately wanted to write musicals. And um, my my process for that is generally like I figure out the story I want to tell, and you can mm-hmm. figure out the beats where um, the story is served by shifting into a song, be mm-hmm. it. Um, well, I won't go into all <laughs> the many reasons why we choose to do that, but emotional or ideological terms are generally um, good places for songs. And um, and then I would sort of start writing out rough concepts. And, and depending on the composer I was working with, uh, sometimes I would just write the gist of what the character's going through, and right. they would start composing and writing lyrics. And other times I would write full lyrics give it to them, they would rework it into some music and say, like, can we change this here? Can we add something here? Can you change the the meter? And, you know, I would do, 
I always end up doing rewrites once the song is sort of on its legs. Um, mm-hmm. Sometimes to an, an obnoxious extent, which is like two months into the show being open, I would still rewrite lyrics, <laughs> <laughs> which is easier to get away with when I'm in the cast. And so I'm doing it to myself as sure. well, as opposed <laughs> to when, when I'm, um, you know, just on the outside and, and making people keep working when they're just supposed to be enjoying it. Right. Um, now, you wrote a play, and it has one of the greatest titles ever, uh, called Amelia Earhart, Jungle Princess. <laughs> um, yeah, it pretty much explains its premise uh, right there. <laughs> no, and I mean, I haven't seen it, obviously, uh, it being a play that you you did in, in, I think it was in Chicago, wasn't it? Yeah, yeah. Um, but, uh, and I have no reason of bringing it up other than to, to let you know how much I enjoy the title, and I would love to be able to see it. Um <laughs> But I want to point out that many of these sensationalized sort of biographies slash these classic book uh, horror action mashups like Pride and Prejudice and Zombies or Abraham Lincoln Vampire Hunter, uh, Sense and Sensibilities and Sea Monsters, they all came out in 2009 or 2010. Yeah. Amelia Earhart, Jungle Princess, opened up in September 2008. Thank I'm not saying I'm not because I, I I I I fear that when people see that it it seems like I was trying to cash in on a trend, but no. we were ahead of the curve on that. Exactly. I'm not saying anyone stole your idea, but <laughs> do you think you started a trend with that? Um, <laughs> you know, I would like to think that our marketing was so uh, uh, wide-reaching that that it could have impacted people's <laughs> psyches. Um, I don't know. I I will say I do. It's so funny because I had um, that was an idea I had had for a little while, which came out of uh, there. There's an action adventure slanting uh, theater in Chicago called the House Theater. Mm-hmm. I have tremendous respect for them. Uh, Chris Burnham, who's a fantastic comic book artist, uh, I met him through that company. That's oh. like of his, um, and he's now a big old. He's one of Grant Morrison's artists now. Oh, cool. um, but. Uh, they they do these kind of arch uh, genre theater pieces as well. And um, I knew the guy who was their literary manager. And he sort of was like, what would you write for us if you wrote something? And I chewed it over and came up with one idea about what happened to Amelia Earhart. Mm-hmm. And uh, I had another idea that was like I wanted to do a sort of um, I thought another fun genre for them would be the kind of jungle person, you know, uh, Tarzan, Sheena, any of that sort of stuff, sort of jungle fiction. Um, and then I sort of realized they're the same show. And I <laughs> I had written down Amelia Earhart and separately Jungle Princess. And I was like, holy crap, if you put that together, like you see a poster and you go, I know what that show is and I really want to see it. Yeah. Uh, and and that um, that kind of goes back to, to what I was saying before about I was sort of always interested in or I try to be mindful of making a promise to the audience mm-hmm. and then paying it off. Uh, I feel like um, it's so difficult to get on any person's attention anymore. We have a million. I mean, I have a Facebook window open right now and there are literally 20 ads, um, you know, between these little tiles for games or all the ads on the side. These are all people who want my time and attention. Sure. I, I feel like they get maybe a second or two. So um, I do think it's incredibly important if you can have a good title that makes a promise to the audience. Um, you're, you're so much closer to getting them to give you, 
to getting the people who would want to or who would like your thing to to give you some time, mm-hmm. at least enough to read a little bit more and see if they are interested. Um, but I think you shoot yourself in the foot if you just go with a catchy title and then your thing doesn't deliver. Sure. Um, because then you'll only get the people who are disappointed in what you're doing and you won't get the people who would have loved the thing you actually did. Right. Um, so that, you know, that that's something I try and be mindful of. And Amelia Earhart was definitely one of those things where we were starting a new theater company and that was the show they picked to start with because they felt like no one knows our company. So we have to start with some sort of opening salvo that gets attention and, and makes a promise that that could find us and, and excite an audience. So so that was it. Right. No, it's, it's a fantastic title. <laughs> I, I only wish I could see it. Um, <laughs> do you ever see it being translated into another medium, perhaps a book or a screenplay or anything like that? I, <laughs> I I've thought I've thought about it a lot um because there's honestly there's things about the script that i really would like to revisit and kind of play with in a a different way Mm -hmm. Um, and there's some stuff in it that i really love and would be happy for more people to see um i i wrote a short comic um for a thing called uh double feature which is like 290 for 99 cents it's two eight page short stories by comic book creators. Um, and uh, a lot of my friends from Chicago who are comic book guys were, were doing them. So I did short Amelia Earhart to kind of like test the waters for myself. Right. And um, it was a great experience. I really liked the story, but I still feel like I couldn't in that time totally rectify what I loved about the show with how I would do it in comics it was very it it was written as a theater piece so there were a lot of conventions um built into it that i don't know exactly how they would translate to something else in theater you can get away with being uh, (laughs) non-literal a lot of your visual representation of things so i could have someone on stage be two characters at the same time right um with delivering one monologue you understand them to be two different people at two different points in time mm-hmm. and um uh there's little things like that that i sort of i would really have to rework it um and uh in the meantime i'm just i'm still caught up in other projects but maybe right. someday. okay <laughs> i'll look out for it <laughs> um now i want to transition uh to comics for a little bit uh yeah. since you're a very prolific comic book writer um now i know that you've have an extensive theater background uh and you have also been a comic book fan uh since you were a kid yeah but how did you actually learn to write comic books because it's sort of a unique and an unstructured format with sort of every writer doing it their own way yeah yeah which uh, honestly i find frustrating uh i basically uh so as, as i said marvel um offered me this chance to write an eight-page story, mm-hmm. kind of a tryout for them. And I pitched them a bunch of ideas, and they said, yeah, we like this one, go write it. And I said, okay, what does a comic script look like? Uh, <laughs> and, and uh, you know, they kind of came back and said, uh, there's not one thing. Right. But um, my editor sent me, I think, one of Warren Ellis's scripts. Mm-hmm. And he said, uh, do this, this, and this that he does, and then don't do these other things. And um, so I sort of adopted that and in the in the interim i've had other editors send me other things or ask me to add or change something about my structure 
Uh, and I, so it's been evolving how I lay it out on page. Um, the number one thing is just clarity. You know, you want everyone who looks at the at the script down the line from your artist, your editor, your letterer, your colorist to find the information they need as as easily as possible. Um, so it helps to declare what panel, you know, wh where panels change mm -hmm. and uh, then to specify who's speaking, where you want sound effects, all that stuff. So I tend to just have like a little one to four sentences describing each panel. I number out my panels, what page I'm on, you know, mm -hmm. and then uh, I break out who's speaking. And uh, it's, it, it's, a, it's a constant learning process and I always shift some things. Um, but it, the, the big change for me was, you know, when you're writing theater, you, you don't dictate a lot of action. You mm -hmm. dictate the most important action. Like if someone gets shot, you're, you're, you're definitely saying who shoots who. Right. Um, but in the case of comics, uh, some artists, you can have a bit more of a give and take and let them kind of like choose how to pace action a little bit differently. But for the most part, it's my job to say, this is a worthwhile visual or like this is one moment in the story. Um, and, I, I, you know, you really have to compartmentalize and break down beat by beat. Um, it's also tricky because in com or in theater or even in screenplays, I can sort of say they're driving this whole time and, you know, they're, they're going to be making their way to whatever place, mm -hmm. uh, to the safe house. And then, uh, but in comics, I really have to say, are they turning? When do they get there? Is it just one boring static shot of, uh, two guys sitting in a front seat. I mean, you have to, you have to be the director much right. more. And, um, you know, ultimately your artist is going to trump you on this, but I'll have, to, you don't want it to just be two guys sitting in a car. So I'll tell you when we're outside the car and it, you know, spins by just barely hitting some, you know, just barely not hitting someone crossing the street. Right. When it, when we're outside, you know, we have an aerial shot watching the car, like book around a curve. Um, and, you know, in, in a screenplay, you could maybe say a little bit of that, but um, I've had more people wary me against it. And in theater, no one listens to you. It's going <laughs> to get staged based on the specifics of the space and the budget and what the director wants to do. So um, uh, comics really as a, a whole, I, I had to think much more visually. Right, right. You're definitely talking more. Uh, panels slash camera angles yeah yeah and that's i mean certainly with screenplays you want interesting visuals sure um, but i'm not telling everyone how we're looking at it and how right. we're down in the same way right 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 um now you write uh thief of thieves um and i've heard that working with robert kirkman on this book um is is very different because uh i heard that robert uh kind of wanted to transition his uh television writing to uh the comic book in terms of bringing you know in sort of a tv style writer's room um yeah. bring the com you comic book writers together uh in, in different arcs and onto the thief of thieves book and sort of break down plots and stories and then everyone go off and write their issues which is very different from a majority of comics where yeah. you pitch ideas to an editor they tell you what you know you guys negotiate what story you're going to tell and then you go off and write it right right uh, can you talk a little bit about your experience on thief of thieves and 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 how that process works 
Sure, sure. Um, yeah, you. Uh, that that really was the model. He, you know, from working in the Walking Dead writers' room, um, saw some things that he thought would really work for this. Thief of Thieves is an idea that Robert had really wanted to to do, and his first. Uh, despite the success he's been having with Walking Dead, mm -hmm. you know, he still is a guy who lives and breathes comics. Mm -hmm. um, so he really wanted to do this concept uh, about sort of the way that Walking Dead is an ongoing zombie story in a way that we've never really seen. Uh, he wanted to do the ongoing story about people who pull heists. Because, mm -hmm. um, again, we always just see their movie. And, you know, we but what kind of a person does this what what is it to really live in this life in this world um uh but he was gung-ho to do it and uh but you know he was just pulled in 10 different directions so he had this idea of running it like a tv writer's room and uh you know what when he started it by hiring a, another writer nick spencer mm -hmm. and sort of uh robert had a bunch of his notes a bunch of his ideas and they kind of batted stuff around together um, and Nick started writing the first arc and then Robert brought in, uh, uh, another two of us and we, yeah, just spent a day. He sent us all the material, all of his notes, Nick's scripts so far. And then, uh, we came in and spent a day hashing out, debating, floating ideas, shooting them down, right. uh, reinventing them, um, for what would basically be like the next year or two, two, yeah, like a year and a half, two years of the book. Um, in that writer's room approach. And it, it let Robert really um, have his DNA throughout the whole book uh, in, in sort of one fell swoop that uh, kind of preserved his time, <laughs> you know? And, right. and as we separately go off and write uh, our arcs, you know, I did a, I did a full breakdown. Then uh, I, I walked away with like 20 pages of notes in general and a pretty and, and a roadmap of the major points we were going to do in my six issues. Um, so I then went and laid all the rest of the connective tissue on how we get where, what, what kind of backstory we're going to tease out in our flashbacks and stuff like this, sent that back to him. And, and, you know, Robert then got to weigh in on that and, and recalibrate some things and add some more uh, ideas and, and some of his zest into it. Right. Um, and then it's the same thing. I, the way that a story editor would, you know, again, on a TV show. Mm -hmm. And then I'm um, writing all these scripts and he, he weighs in on the final product. And mostly kind of we mostly he, he already knew what it was going to be. So it's just places where he calls, you know, that he might want us to touch on something that's, uh, you know, needs a reminder or, or a place he'd like to ramp something up or, you know, sometimes he's like, let's not take the character all the way up to 10 just yet. Right. Uh, <laughs> uh, so, you know, he's, he's playing the, the long game um, uh, where to balance out me sort of trying to uh, hash out every issue. Uh, I, I've loved the experience because mm -hmm. I have to say, especially with crime stuff um, and, and heist sort of, as I said before, I think it's incredibly difficult to um, to make the the spectacle of your brilliant crime be the centerpiece. Um, and certainly, with things with telling stories about a master criminal, you want to have some of those great flourishes uh, and payoffs. Mm -hmm. um, 
I, I wholly admit that I'm delighted to have multiple guys in the room with me and we can all between the four or five of us add up to being as smart as the master criminal, you know, right. I mean? that, that is incredibly helpful and sort of everyone's separate research or experience or mm-hmm. previous exposure to, to true crime and, and, um, things of this nature, we all got to weigh in and, and bring some knowledge, um, so I, 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 it's been a wonderful experience for me. Uh, but coming from theater, I love kind of collaborative uh, endeavors. Right. You know? um, so actually sitting in my own apartment, occasionally talking to an editor, having to write everything by myself, is that's the weird experience for me. Right, right. Um, talking about uh, sitting at home, writing by yourself, you have your own creator-owned book coming out in January. Yes. Uh, called The End Times of Bram and Ben. Yeah. And from what I've heard, it's uh, a comedy about two guys caught up in the biblical apocalypse. But maybe you can give us a little more details on, on what the book is about. Yeah, it's um, well. And, and this is actually one that I uh, opted to co-write with uh, a friend of mine, Jim Festante. Mm-hmm. And he is uh, he, he he's got a comedy background. He was an improviser, sketch comedy, um, you know, writing TV pilots and. Uh, stuff like that, uh, that I had met when he was living in New York. And then he moved out here and and we just kind of had been itching to work on something together. Um, And I don't, you know, uh, sort of around the time that people, there was some religious group uh, talking about that they thought the apocalypse was, or the rapture was going to happen like two years ago. (laughs) Right. Um, The first time they thought it, not the second time they thought it. Right. when they started warning everyone of that, um, I, I was raised really Catholic and um, I don't know, I, I have a weird addiction for religious content, um, even though I'm not really a religious person myself uh, at this point in my life. But um, so we, we just couldn't let go of this idea of what happens to us and our friends who would not get raptured at all mm-hmm. um, if if this happens? Like, what what do you do when you suddenly realize you were wrong and everything <laughs> you believed uh, uh, gets upended, sort of def- with definitive proof, uh, just in time for you to realize you're screwed, right? Right. And um, we just loved this story, and we, both it seemed hilarious, and uh, all the different impulses or responses. Uh, just we had so much fun brainstorming it, but at the same time, there was this genuine sort of human heartbreak to mm-hmm. the idea that you know we as people want answers, and and the idea that we would get it only at the time. You know, we, we would only be given answers too late to, to sort of find out like, oh, you're screwed. You were deemed not worthy. And now heaven and hell are going to fight on earth. You're going to all be casualties. <laughs> yeah, um, and uh, we I, I just struck on this idea of a guy being raptured in a clerical error and then sent back to earth um, <laughs> as a way to declare our heaven and hell as fallible. Right, um, right. Which is the only way the story is our guys are going to have a shot, you know? Mm-hmm. I mean? And, and also it just, it makes the whole thing more rife for, um, for the kind of, uh, satire and imperfection that, that I really enjoy. Right. Um, and, and so, yeah, we, we then, you know, uh, just kept teasing it out and we loved it. And 
we weren't sure where to take the story. And then he sort of said, do you think anyone would want it as a comic? And I said, let's try running a Kickstarter and see if people, if enough people like it. So we, we found an artist uh, that really sells the emotion and, and the, you know, wry irony and tragedy of it all. Um, and uh, we ran a Kickstarter and, and made enough to fund, you know, half of the projects. So we just decided to, to go for it. And uh, Image Comics was kind enough to, when I started getting involved with them around Thief of Thieves, to sort of express interest in other stuff I was working on. And I showed them this thinking they, they may not go for it um, because it is a little... Um, I God, I, I hate the word edgy, but I don't... Like, it, it could rub people the wrong way. Sure. Um, it's not, that's not our goal, but mm -hmm. I know that we're playing around with stuff that some people get, um, uh, defensive or, or emotional right. about, and that's fine. That's fine. But, um, that's, uh, luckily that's why image comics exists is to let you just tell the story you want to tell independent of, you know, um, the market or critics or whatever. And, uh, uh, they they backed us and we've had a wonderful response so far. I've been floating it out to some creators and retailers uh, in advance of it coming out in January, and the response has been tremendous. So um, that's great. Uh, yeah, I'm 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 thrilled that you know enough people were jumping on, on board for this. Right, right. Yeah, and anytime you bring up uh, religion or or politics, I think you run the risk of getting some sort of. Uh, uh, vitriol thrown at you uh, even if you have no specific agenda other than trying to tell an interesting and unique story yeah i mean the first musical that i co-wrote was uh biblical satire about the book of job hmm. um which was really it was with my sketch group in college and it was really just because once you say that god and the devil are screwing with a guy you have carte blanche to do whatever you want <laughs> Right. Break the rules of physics. Right. You can do whatever. So transitioning from sketch comedy, that let us create as um, as sort of it, it took the weight off doing a linear narrative or, or being beholden to to logical rules. It kind of let us do whatever we wanted. Um, and then I, I I've written a bunch of other things that are just kind of you know still me exercising the religion that I grew up with and, and how I feel about it, which, which is not entirely negative. Um, you know, I certainly have some things that some bones to pick, but, um, I, I it's not a polemic or polemic. I'm, i shouldn't use words. I don't know how to pronounce, but, uh, <laughs> uh, it, it really just is that thing where we have so many apocalyptic stories and post-apocalyptic stories. Mm -hmm. I feel like, um, the the biblical apocalypse at this point is part of our american mythology sure whether you believe in this religion or not like right. we are all aware of you know the four horsemen of the apocalypse the antichrist like this is I, to me it's just that sort of a thing right um, right and, and i i'm not i certainly am not purporting that what we are saying is true to how the world works or the end would happen um but hopefully it raises interesting questions and Above all, I think it's a crazy, really funny, really fun, but still kind of like, I think there's, it's still a really human story. Mm -hmm. Now, the artistic style, is it more, because I could see you can go a lot of different ways with it. 
Yeah, yeah, and we we debated. Um, we found a great artist who uh, uh, out of Germany mm. uh, named Remus Bresnew. Uh, although I think he's going by the uh, art name of Rem Brew. But, oh, interesting. Uh, <laughs> he. The closest thing for people who know comics, the closest thing I can compare his art to is Chu, um, which is okay. a, another image comic. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, we we have uh, Jim Mafood doing the cover for the first issue. Cool. Um, and I think his art is puts you in in kind of that same space. But Remus's stuff is a little bit cleaner, a little bit more. Um, expressive mm-hmm. uh, but it certainly has like a cartooning element to it right, right. Uh, balanced up against the the comicsness okay cool that yeah that's kind of what i was getting from a description but you never know like, you could totally take it in a different way so yeah um yeah, we, we 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 really were hung up on finding someone who could and this is true with me in general if i have any say in my artists i always gravitate towards the ones who can whose characters can act and this is this is really how my background specifically influences my comics work is that I'm very more than anything. I want an artist that can sell the emotion of my characters. Right. And, and that lets me put it on their faces more so than have someone be like, I'm angry. Um, I I'm so depressed the times that I've gotten art back and I realize I'm going to have to take any subtlety out of my scripting. Right. Cause everyone has the same like closed mouth expression and everything. <laughs> So I'm going to have to have people literally tell you how they feel. Right, right. And talking about those old uh, Justice League. Oh, uh, those are so expressive. Exactly. It's brilliant. It's so, there are absolutely, there's a subtlety and a complexity to those expressions um, that makes it so real and, and makes it resonate as you know, in a, in a way that most people dismissively think comic books don't do right exactly um but they only don't do it when you choose to not have them do it or when your artist just <laughs> never care to 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 get good at expressions right <laughs> when they're more about muscles and and uh action right. poses than they are yeah. about facial expression I could, I could draw 32 kinds of guns man <laughs> right yeah six pack he's got an 18 pack <laughs> right right um now um lastly i guess in terms of bram and ben what yeah. was the, that sort of editorial process like? Since it's creator-owned, did you kind of just do what you, what you guys wanted? Or did you actually seek out a strong editor to help you sort of put the book together? Or how, how did that work? Um, you know, I- Image Comics basically lets you... They sort of do their quality control up front. you got to mm-hmm. show them a good chunk of the material. Um, uh, and And that was sort of their making sure our instincts were in the right place. Uh, but we wanted an editor, um, especially with, you know, I, I do hesitate to call the book a comedy, but with the comedy that's in the book, mm-hmm. um, because that's such a central part of the, the book's voice. Uh, and the end, honestly, I think the experience of reading it, like it's how you're engaging with these characters. A lot of times is their sense of humor. Um, we had to make sure we had to have some line of defense between us and the audience to let us know when it wasn't as funny as we thought it was, you know, Um, you, you really have to, because, and and that's the weird thing about my background in comedy is doing sketch, doing stand up. um, Honestly, 
you know, with those, you have the opportunity to try out some material buttressed by stuff you know is going to work. Right. And, you know, to rotate out the new thing um, and, and workshop it until you're like, okay, now it works. Or you learn like, okay, no one thinks this is funny. Let's let it go. Um, and you can couch it in a, in a, in road tested material with improv. You can even follow your audience and you can hear when they don't, when they want you to stop talking about something. Right. Uh, and you can, you can sort of make those adjustments mid course comics, man, your first audience is your last audience. Uh, <laughs> you know, that's everyone. Um, right with the exception of, of getting editorial there. Um, and, and like you've alluded to some editors have, uh, they'll, they'll participate a little bit more strongly than others. We needed someone to do that. Right. Um, and right around the time we knew we were going forward with this book, uh, Sebastian Gurner had just uh, chosen to leave Marvel mm -hmm. as an editor. And he was my editor on, um, uh, a few things, but particularly this issue of, a book called Deadpool Team Up, mm -hmm. which was by by its mandate, sort of the place where you could run wild and and have your book be funny. Um, and I relished that opportunity. And and my issue of that is still one of my favorite comics I've ever written. Uh, but Sebastian was great at calling out, um, like, uh, you know, we, we get it. You can shave off these jokes and, and shift into something else or, you know, um, keeping an eye on clarity versus indulgence. Uh, and, and I just learned that I, I trusted him completely with that. So we reached out and he was kind enough to, uh, to come on board and work on this with us. Oh, very um, cool. And it's been invaluable. Right. And especially, you know, doubly so because we are talking about religious viewpoints, um, we, we really wanted someone monitoring tone to make sure that what we're saying was clear, um, that it never came off in, in, a, you know, a dismissive way, uh, uh, an aggressive way, a condescending way that we, that we weren't intending. Right. Right. Um, now we've got a few listener questions that were sent oh, to us. Right. Um, the first one is how did you get the job writing for Gambit? I answered my phone when they called. <laughs> um, I never know why Marvel chooses me for the specific projects they choose me for, sure. unless they explain it. Uh, and in the case of Gambit, all I know is that um, my editor, Daniel Ketchum, kind of wanted some um, like playfulness and swagger brought mm -hmm. back to the character. And uh, I am not one of those grim and gritty writers sure. as previously established. Right, right. Um, uh, I don't think he knew that I used to live in New Orleans, which I've been delighted to uh, try and steer Gambit's much maligned accent into more realistic territory. Right, right. Um, uh, but yeah, I, you know, uh, honestly, I think it's just. Um, I didn't have any, I had just finished projects for Marvel and mm -hmm. I had just done uh, longer runs on books. So they knew that I could, uh, I could do it and I could tell forwardly progressing stories, but that they didn't have me locked up somewhere else. Right. Um, and yeah. Yeah. Um, the next one is how does the writing process work for you? That's sort of a broad question, but, um, uh, it is different for every project. Mm -hmm. uh, in general, uh, in general, I play around with a bunch of ideas. I figure out the ones I'm most excited about mm -hmm. and run them by people 
be that my editors with whom I'm contractually obligated to run it by. Right. Uh, or, you know, if, if it's a project I want to do on my own, I'll talk to my managers or friends who are writers or who I honestly, um, m- my wife is not in arts and creation. Um, mm-hmm. uh, I love to run stuff by her as audience. Sure. Just see like, what what is a regular person's take on, does this make sense? Is it exciting? Do you see the human story if I just tell you this? Um, so I, I always start, even if there's a story I really want to tell, if I can't explain it to people succinctly right. <laughs> or they aren't excited when I do, mm-hmm. um, <clears throat> then I know I need to either keep working on the idea or shift to something else. Right. Uh, and from there, I just break down i start by writing down all the things that i know need to happen either because that's why i'm interested in telling the story or just logically i i have to you know x has to cause y z and i try and lay that stuff down i spend a little bit of time then questioning myself um if those really have to happen right because a lot of times the when you do the thing you feel like you have to, it just ends up being the most boring part of your story, not something truly essential or gripping for your audience. Right. Uh, and from there, I just start playing around and ask myself like cause and effect questions. How do you get here? What's an interesting way to get here? If this really did happen, what what's your impulse? How do you react? Mm-hmm. How does this character react? Um, and uh, sometimes I hit a wall and I have to shift and start answering questions about my characters. Um, and uh, generally that happens pretty soon into the outline because your characters should be the ones making the choices, not you as the writer deciding this should happen. Like it right. kind of has to make sense with the people who in your story who are doing it. Um, yeah, so then I basically just keep shifting back and forth between those two until I have something I can show someone and they can point out every bad idea or point. <laughs> And I love that. I love, honestly, I, um, I, I really question the earnest commitment and future prospects of people who can't handle criticism sure. uh, or assessment of your material. If you're writing for any audience ever to read it, watch it, pay money for it, you should want to know what parts people don't like. Right. Uh, when it's people you trust up front you'll never appease everyone but that's why i find out figure out who in your life you like their sensibilities and if you've pleased them you'd be really proud of yourself right Uh, and then you know bug those people with your not finished ideas (laughs) right um and finally uh what other licensed characters would you love to write for oh man um gargoyles the 90s cartoon show. Oh, cool. Owned by Disney. Yeah. yeah. Um, once Disney bought Marvel, like the next day, I think I called my editors and said, can I write a Gargoyles comic? Um, that weaves in so much Shakespeare uh, work uh, and mythology that mm-hmm. I just feel like I would have a ball having an excuse to go back and reread complete Shakespeare and sure. you know, write comic book stuff. Um right. Uh, I feel like at some point I would love to write Fantastic Four. Um, mm. Spider-Man, I've only had like one or two super brief opportunities to write him, but the fact that he himself has a sense of humor is 
totally makes him but but still has like real pathos um right i feel like i could just live in with him forever uh i think you would do a great thing talking about the fantastic four thank you i i would enjoy the hell out of that um there's really i have different reasons for liking everyone in fantastic four sure sure things that i would be excited about doing right um you know We'll we'll see, but I don't, uh, you know they just announced a new team on it, and it's not me, so <laughs> I'm not holding my breath. But um, uh, DC has a lot of fun stuff. I actually I love um, I love a lot of the weirder characters at DC. I don't think I would want to write Superman or or Batman as much as I enjoy them. I, I think I, I think I, I enjoy writing Green Lantern, where you could go a little crazy with with what he does. Well, that's the thing, though. I could see you writing uh, for DC books, but not Green Lantern, but Guy Gardner. I think you would be yeah. fantastic. Yeah, oh my god, I would... I mean, Guy Gardner would be the most fun to write. Absolutely. Honestly, honestly, I would love to make a Motley Crew team, because the truth is from writing, from doing improv, mm-hmm. uh, you know, most of my theater stuff has a bunch of people bantering back and forth. Like, I, I like... I like a mixture. The, the easiest book I've ever written was Generation Hope, which was, you know, six teenagers who right. didn't get along with each other. And that, to me, is heaven. So I, I, I would love to grab some DC sort of second-tier characters and create a seemingly unworkable team. Right. Uh, that would be a dream come true. Yeah, grab Guy Gardner and Blue Beetle and <laughs> a bunch of random... Uh... Was there a God? I can't remember the character's name. He was like, well, I love, I, I love Zatanna. Uh, oh. I love people where things can go wrong. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, yeah, just it, basically anyone who adds elements of unpredictability. Sure. Um, lets you know, lets me surprise myself and and therefore the reader within the confines of of something that you earned. Because if you're just random for random sake, then no one cares. Right. You know? Uh, but but if if everyone can be invested, but anything still can happen, um, there's a real excitement to that. And, and to that extent, I would love to write Doctor Strange or someone with magic powers. Um, but, you know, I think Marvel's still trying to get a hold on how they think magic works in their universe. Right, right. Sorry. Yeah, and, and it, it does open up a whole new um, avenue that you can go when you add that magic being sort of unpredictable. Yeah. You know, allows you to, uh, it opens up a whole can of worms, that Pandora's box. Yeah. That I think is pretty cool. Um, going back to what you were talking about, the uh, the uh, sketch comedy show with the God and Satan oh, fighting yeah. each other. You know, when you open the doors, when you remove those rules and boundaries, it allows you to really kind of go crazy. Yeah. Yeah, actually, you know, that's, um, it's it's, that's a device that I feel like, it's always floating in the back of my head. I always could do some other version of a story modernizing Job, you know, just to really cut loose and do something crazy, especially in comics where, you know, with theater, we, the idea was we could do anything. And then we really quickly realized we had so little money to do it that, you know, <laughs> we couldn't, we had a real hard time communicating the idea of a shark coming out of an elevator. Right. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> um, Cool. We're nearing the end of our time here. Okay. Um, we've got a section we call rapid fire. It's just basically either or questions. Great. 
Um, so I'll start it off with comedy or drama. Comedy. Um, you've written I mean, a lot. Of you know, my answer is both, but right. Oh. Sure. Get to pick one or the other. Um, now you've written a lot of X type titles. Uh, better obscure X Man, Mimic or Dazzler. Oh, um, I have a love for Mimic based on having to rework his origin in mm -hmm. a story, but I actually think Dazzler is the much more fun character. Sure, cool. Um, you're part part of a comedy troupe. Hey, you millionaires! Um, a better comedy troupe: Kids in the Hall or The State? Kids in the Hall. <laughs> no hesitation. I love The State, but Kids in the Hall. Cool. By a mile. Um, you you also write Thief of Thieves and Gambit being a thief. Uh, yeah. Better thief: Robin Hood or Alibaba? <laughs> I'm woefully ignorant on Alibaba. Um, <laughs> uh, but. I would say him because he didn't then he didn't need, you know, uh, I was about to say he didn't need a whole band of guys, but he has the 40 thieves, right? It's Alibaba and the 40 thieves. Yeah, I got it wrong. I'm not a hundred percent sure on either. I kind of looked him up as I was doing this. <laughs> um, I, um, everyone I, knows of Alibaba and the 40 thieves, but it's yeah, cool. yeah. so I'll, I'll, I'll still go with him though, because I don't think he turns around and gives it to other people. <laughs> Good it kind of undermines the thieving. You're right, really, right. And you're like just a, a, a middle manager or something. Which is great. The great thing about Thief of Thieves because you take it to the next level. It's a thief stealing from other thieves. Yeah, exactly. Which is brilliant. Um, okay, who would win in a step-up style dance-off? <laughs> you, Jason Sudeikis, who also is a, a, a annoyance theater alum. Yeah. Um, or Robert Kirkman, and why? Oh man. I really feel like it's not Kirkman, although I feel like he would have the fan, the onlooker enthusiasm on his side. Um, I want to say that just because I'm a couple years younger, I could probably smoke Sudeikis. Okay. He's probably a little too creaky. <laughs> Fair enough. That, that's a good enough, That's a, as good a reason as any, I suppose. Um, and lastly, uh, I saw your uh, video for Hey You Millionaires for Crazy Hank. Were you oh, Crazy Hank. That's one of the uh, oldest videos you can find of me on the internet. Yeah, no, it was very, very funny. But who's a crazier Hank? Hank Schrader from Breaking Bad or Hank Hill from King of the Hill? Oh, wow. Oh, totally Hank, Hank Schrader. Okay. <laughs> very cool. Uh, well, that's all the time we have for now. Thanks for t t joining me today, James. Thank you, man. My pleasure. Uh, you can find James uh, on Twitter at, at James Asmus, or you can visit his website, uh, jamesasmus.com. And please visit our website at scriptsandscribes.com for more information on all of our guests' archived podcasts and lots of other great interviews and information on writing. And if you have any questions about the craft or business of writing, you can send us an email to ask at scriptsandscribes.com or send us a tweet to at scriptscribes. There's no and in the middle there, just at scriptscribes. Thanks for listening.